0: What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and welcome to episode 82 of the Adult Education Podcast. Joining me today is Julie Bogart. Thank you so much for hanging out today. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to my show. Adult education is this fun labor of love project for me that I do out of love of conversation and learning more about people and things. If you'd like to support me or the show, the best way that you can do that is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I know most of you listen via Spotify. I take a look at the metrics from time to time. It seems to be Spotify is the biggest place people are coming from. Those five stars on Spotify are huge. Also, if you're listening on a platform that allows a review, if you can share a few words, that's really big too. That helps the podcast algorithm know which shows it wants to share out to new listeners. So I've got some personal feelings about this week's conversation. I'm speaking with Julie Bogart. She's an author and the creator of the award-winning Innovative Brave Writer program, teaching writing and language arts to thousands of families every year. Her latest book is called Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. So I've got issues with the term critical thinking. I think it's such an important skill to have, don't get me wrong. As we discuss in the conversation you're about to hear, kids are losing the ability to think critically about things, and that's bad. We as parents, teachers, and adults they look up to tend to squash that process by giving them strict rules and regulations they need to follow. Like when your mom would say something like, because I said so when you asked a question. Those kinds of responses kill critical thinking because it gives that definitive answer. It doesn't allow for them to think the process through. So I do think it's important that we let kids ask questions and to figure out how to learn. But critical thinking, like so many other things, has been taken over by conspiracy theorists and politicians pushing crazy agendas. These people say things like, I'm a critical thinker, and I believe the world is flat. Or, I'm a critical thinker, and through my own personal research, I've discovered that COVID vaccines are unsafe. Now, rational people understand that these are both completely false statements, but these groups of people are weaponizing the idea of critical thinking and turning it into something that it isn't. So I enjoyed this conversation with Julie because I was able to push her on some of these things. She's a very interesting person and had good answers for me, too. So hopefully you'll enjoy this talk as well. The book itself also fascinating. It's so hard these days for kids because everything is digital. Think about like your boomer parents, for example, who believe everything they read on Facebook. And they're adults that should be able to think these things through. Now imagine young children that are trying to learn for the first time, and they're coming across the same misinformation. Julie's book helps to give a framework for how we can help kids navigate this digital world. Hi there. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Let me move this so you don't see my disgusting basement uh, behind me. You know I don't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, it's you know, you'd think after two years of working from home that I'd have cleaned things up and organized a little bit better, but no.
1: I'm hiding my printer with flowers, I completely understand. And I hauled out how much garbage that was on the floor. So yeah, in fact, I even see a cord laying there. So yeah, I'm with you. I hear you.
0: I do feel like, and I could be wrong, but uh, we spoke about two years ago, uh, I think it was March of 2020. I do feel like you're in a different room though, are you? Is that true?
1: Uh, it's probably just rearranged, but it is the same room. Yeah. But that's great that you remember that. That was a really fun radio tour too. I'm so glad to be back. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I'm excited to have you too. I was actually just watching you on Instagram live with, um, with, I don't know what her name is, but the account is busy toddler.
1: Yeah. Susie. Oh my gosh. Good.
0: I actually just happened to log on to Instagram and it you know, like gives you that prompt You know, when it tells you right. someone is live. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be speaking with her in a couple of days. I should watch this and see what she has That's to say. That's
1: amazing. Yeah, she's great, man. She That was a fun interview. She's really a wonderful person.
0: Well, Julie, you have quite the work here. Uh, the book is called Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. I feel like the term critical thinking has been brought up a lot over uh, recent months. And I don't know if there's a clear understanding to what it truly means. So why don't you give me a definition of what you're talking about with this?
1: Oh, I would love to. Um, I see critical thinking a little differently than maybe a lot of people do. Sometimes when we say that word, I think what activates in a mind is I'm going to be critical of this other guy's ideas. I'm going to be able to find the flaws in his belief system or holes in his theories. But for me, critical thinking starts a little closer to home. It is the self-awareness required to be able to consider an idea that makes you uncomfortable or to even consider a variety of perspectives. So the way I define critical thinking is the ability to evaluate evidence, to notice bias as it kicks into gear, to consider a variety of perspectives, even if they make you uncomfortable. And then, only then, to render a possible verdict, what you believe to be true for now. That's the heart of the critical thinking task.
0: So Raising Critical Thinkers was not the original title for this book.
1: It was not. Originally, I wanted to call it Raising Self-Aware Thinkers, because I have such an important point to make about self-awareness. I feel like so often we go into reading an article or a book, and we already know what we hope the writer is going to say, right? Like a question you can ask yourself before you read anything is what do I hope will be true? Because the second you answer that question, you know what your bias is. You know that you're hoping to discredit the writer or you're hoping that the writer affirms your viewpoint. So for me, the critical thinking task starts with that concept that I am bringing a very full and rich and vibrant identity to my reading or to my research, and it is literally influencing whether or not I hear the case this person is making. So I wanted that to be the title. But of course, my editor was like, the zeitgeist is critical (laughs) thinking. So we're going to pull out that language and then you can define it however you want. And honestly. I think that's worked out really well because I think people wouldn't know what self-aware thinking is, but critical thinking draws them in. And then we really can talk about what are those features that I think are really important to consider when you're thinking well.
0: There was an example that you used uh, during that busy toddler uh, Instagram live where you were talking about Explain to a child why they have to wash their hands. And I kind of liked the way that example went because I thought it really, it really hammered home the idea of asking questions and keeping the conversation going um, without taking it into a weird way. So can can we kind of recap that example?
1: Yeah, I would love to. So A lot of times when we're raising our children, parents are leading what I call the parental indoctrination program from the time the baby is born, right? We all wanna recruit people to team right ideas and our children are our easiest recruits. So here's what will happen. A five-year-old, you'll call them to dinner and then you say, hey, you know, little sweetheart, you need to go wash your hands. And the five-year-old says, I don't want to. The usual parental reply is, Well, you have to, because there are these invisible things we call germs and they cling to your hands, even though you can't see them and water washes them off so that those germs don't go in your food, infect your body and make you sick. So we're like citing scientific research. We're trying to persuade a five-year-old that something invisible can harm them because they can't understand (laughs) that, And we just keep this indoctrination program going until they finally relent and wash their hands. Now you can't do this for everything in their lives, but once in a while, wouldn't it be interesting if for a minute you just took your child seriously? So they said, I don't wanna wash my hands and you got curious, fascinated instead. And you said, oh, why is that? What is it about washing your hands you don't like? I don't like the water. Why don't you like the water? I just don't like how it feels on my hands. Now you can start asking some really good questions, like, well, is it the temperature? Is it too cold, too hot? Should we test the water and take the temperature and see which temperature is comfortable for your hands and what isn't? And actually do the data collection. Do the research with your child. Validate the fact that they have a legitimate perspective that water on their hands is uncomfortable. Start to let them know that you value their perceptions enough to take them seriously. That is truly the foundation of critical thinking and we can start at a very young age.
0: My daughter's 14 months old now. Uh, she's not quite in the questioning phase just yet, but there's that you know stereotype of every kid where they just ask you why after every single thing. Yes. So it's almost like kids inherently want to be critical thinkers, and parents almost kind of ruin that for them.
1: Yeah, parents and schools. Yeah. So there are some clinical studies that show that by sixth grade, the imagination a child had at like five is gone. They are so conditioned away from having a a creative reaction to information, their own imagination, their own thoughts, and they have been regimented into right-answer thinking. What we can do at home, and you you brought up a 14-month-old, I have a two-year-old granddaughter, they try everything with their mouths. Everything goes into their mouths. This is their primary vehicle for experimentation, research, and data collection. So we're over there helping them have the right things to taste, to touch. You know, you have a child who's 12 months old who rejects green beans and likes peas. That is phenomenally interesting to me. Like on what grounds are you rejecting the green beans? There is a personality at work here. There is a data collection occurring. And if we could start valuing that, honoring it and being curious about it, we will be halfway to raising really great thinkers.
0: So I got to tell you a funny story about my daughter. Uh, Lunch today, I was just kind of feeling lazy, so I thought I'd make a little grilled cheese and some tater tots and just say, okay, we're doing this today, whatever. Uh, She wouldn't touch anything. She had no interest in any of it. I whipped together some leftover uh, corn, black beans, and broccoli, and she ate every bit of it. I'm like, "What? whose kid are you? What is this? (laughs) You're choosing vegetables over the grilled cheese?
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And, you know, perceptions change over time. So my daughter, who's currently 32 years old and pregnant, and married, right? Like she, this is from a long time ago. When she was young, salad was her favorite thing. Like every day she wanted me to give her salad. And this is like from age two all the way till about age eight. And then one day she didn't like it anymore. I could not figure out what she didn't like. And she used to say, this shows you the parenting indoctrination. People would offer her salad and this is how she'd respond at age eight or nine. The sad thing about me is I used to like salad. (laughs) So she had already been conditioned to believe that it was wrong to stop liking it. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. What we want to recognize is how successful parents are at getting their kids to align with the family program till they're about 14. And then they discover there's a whole world of people who are successfully living, not following the parental plan. And that's when the conflict really heats up. And it's at that point, that if you have not made room for dissent in your family, your relationships with your children will feel very high stakes. Mm. And what we really want is for the connection to remain while the child safely explores, you know, the radical conspiracy theory or why vaping should be okay or the fact that this heavy metal band is actually music, right? Like those things should be permitted in our families.
0: It's kind of funny. I feel like you just described my life growing up. It was a very like, very strict, very, you know, to the point household. And when I got to be in upper middle school into high school, I started to explore all these different things. My friends were able to do all these things I wasn't able to do and it created a lot of tension between my parents and I. Not to a really bad place, you know, there was always still a respect and a love there, but uh, but there was still a lot of like, well, why can't yeah. I go to this 10 o'clock movie if all of my friends are going to this 10 o'clock movie? Right. I don't understand what's the difference for them versus me. And it was, it, it is very very interesting to look at it from your perspective right there, because I think had I have known that back then, I would have understood how to think through that process better.
1: Yes. And wouldn't it be interesting to test some of those ideas? Like one of the examples I've given um, in other interviews, imagine your child says, I want to play this video game for 24 hours. You know, the parent is immediately going to be like, that's unrealistic. You need to sleep. What about peeing? Right. They go into that sort of like parental nudge. But what if you even said, you know what, that's kind of an interesting experiment. Maybe we should try it. Um, What day do you want to do it? How are you going to get food? Do you need me to make you some food in advance? Like, What if we let them actually take the risk of living this fantasy and seeing what happened and then asking how they felt about it? If you've created a safe enough place, they can actually tell you the truth. If you haven't, they will hide the things that they are thinking, which is, wow, that was too tiring, because they're trying to protect their right to test another thing at another time. So part of what we want to do is create that space. And I will tell you, I did it imperfectly. I learned these things through the school of hard knocks, right? I have a child who was a true gamer, and it took me several years to realize that late night gaming was his favorite because his siblings were out of the room and he could give it his full attention. And I was over here like, you need your sleep. And yet he was homeschooled. The kid could sleep in. And we finally had this logical conversation where, mom, I can just do school in the afternoon, sleep until noon and game from 10 till three in the morning. It was against my value system for some completely incomprehensible reason. Do you see what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, no, I totally get it. Now, but I, I want to I push a little bit because let, let's go back yes. to the hand-washing thing for just a second. So you're going to get yes. all these questions. You're going to go back and forth. You're going to learn. You're going to help your kid think about the reasons why. and They're going to understand that. But there, I feel like there will come a point where you're just going to have to say, all right, listen, kid, you just got to wash your hands. Like, the, the fact is you don't want to be dirty. We got to get you to – like, at what point do you stop letting them explore and bring them back to the real world and bring them back to what's right and wrong?
1: Here's how I would frame that. Instead of framing it through right and wrong and real world, let's do it this way. How about just taking one or two of those a week? Like, go ahead and say, hey, you have to wash your hands all those times. But then what if one time you just didn't? You're like, you know, he keeps saying he hates washing his hands. Maybe there's a reason, right? So yes, you have to go to Target. You have to get to play group. You have to go to church. You can't have these deep conversations all the time. But you can make room for them. Here's another example of something that every parent can do who has children. When you're watching a movie, especially like a Disney movie, keep the remote control in your hand. And every now and then, just pause. And I want you to ask these kinds of questions. Okay, guys, who are we rooting for? Okay, why do we want to root for them? Who aren't we rooting for? Who are we rooting against? Why aren't we rooting for them? I mean, what is his story? Is it being told? Who's shaping the idea that this is the bad guy, this is the good guy? How did we know? Uh, Another great question. What has to happen for this story to be over? What version of the ending will upset us? Which one will make us happy? Which one do we think it will be? start asking the kinds of questions that don't have right or wrong answers, but invite deeper exploration so that they start to realize, oh yeah, actually this story is being told through this one character's lens. It might look different if it was told through Gaston's, right? Instead of Bell's. So this is the way that you start growing critical thinkers. Now, we were so in the habit of doing this. My my kid's dad is a literature professor, so he loves those kinds of conversations. So one time my mom was babysitting our kids and he and I were out for dinner and we got home and my mom told us this really funny story. They were watching a Disney movie and she's just like washing dishes or whatever. And my five-year-old comes over and hands her the remote and says, stop the movie. This is where we ask questions. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, these habits get inculcated, right? They start to realize that questioning is a way of life it's not just something that is for a test
0: when can questioning go too far and I, and I don't know if there is a right answer to this but you know as i mentioned earlier i think critical thinking has been kind of taken sort of out of context in recent months where you have people saying well i've done my critical thinking and i believe the world is flat well we know that scientifically the world is not flat so this critical thinking has clearly taken that person aside to a different place so When when do we put a stop to critical thinking? I that might not be the right way to word that, but I
1: think I know what you're asking. So let me do this with you. Let's take that flat earther because that is such an extreme position and the majority of humankind would disagree with it. So the question I would ask wouldn't be, how do I get this person back to reality? My question would be, what's at stake for this person to come back to reality? What will they lose? Why is it that they are clinging to something that has been so proven not to be true, where are their sources of authority and what are they getting? What is the benefit of having that viewpoint? Because until we understand the meaning the person makes for themselves, we can't even have that conversation. So we have to start from this like contextualization place of, wow, this really outrageous belief exists in the world. And there are people who actually believe in it and cling to each other. What does that mean for them? Because once we understand that, then we can actually facilitate the kind of solution that might account for them. It doesn't mean they'll change, but we do want to account for them. I think too often our solutions are about converting instead of accounting for. And I think that's, even with children, that's a nice beneficial reframe. Rather than thinking, how can I convert them to understand the legitimacy of my view, which is older, wiser, adulter. I can say, how do I account for the fact that this child really hates washing his hands, and yet I know he needs to? Can we use hand sanitizer? Can we use wipes? Can we talk about just washing their hands when they've been outside, not when they're inside and it's probably fine? Like, how do we account for that difference? I think that's a helpful reframe.
0: I think you kind of just led me into something else here um, because there is something to be said about communities and people mm. kind of wanting to feel like they fit into a community or into a group. And, you know, you've been working with the internet basically since day one with your business. Uh, Brave Brave Writer? Brave Writer. Yes, yes, Brave Writer. Sorry, Brave Learner is the book. Brave Writer is your business. It's was,
1: the company. Yep, yeah, so that's were right.
0: Getting confused in my head. Okay, so Brave Writer. So you, <laughs> you've been around working with the internet for a long time. So you've seen, you know, the, the start to where we We've gotten to now where it can be kind of dangerous sometimes where there can be a lot of misinformation and but people will fall into that group. So when you talk about what's at stake for someone to believe or not to believe in something, what's at stake could be that belonging to the group that they feel a part of.
1: A hundred percent. And there is orthodoxy and heresy in every group. I was a La Leche League leader for 10 years. And, you know, some of those groups were like really rigid like if you showed up with a pacifier in your baby's mouth people would look at you funny like oh you're not really committed to breastfeeding oh, i wouldn't, so be, even all- I wouldn't be allowed in there <laughs> <clears throat> right but you know the very first group i was a part of was not like that there were moms bottle feeding at that meeting because any amount of breastfeeding was welcome and encouraged so there can be this both and where you are championing a cause but you are also willing to include difference of experience and opinion. Belonging is such a human need that we will sacrifice our own reality to stay with our groups. This happens, um, this has been traced in domestic violence, in religious cults. Those are the extreme versions of that. But we feel that even in our affinity groups, like, well, this is the group I drink beer with or I play golf with and they all voted, you know, X, Republican or Democrat, and I'm the outlier. So I just won't say what I think, right? We all have a version of that in our lives. And what we want to do is start actually building communities where dissent is encouraged and welcome. And our families are a great place to start.
0: I I don't wanna put all the blame on the internet or social media, but it it does seem like it has been an absolute game changer in crushing Critical thinking and crushing converse. Like you would think there'd be so much more conversation because we're connected all the time. But that's what I thought. But the conversation is not going the way that we want it to. It's 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 going into these, you know, different subsects and it's not letting people actually have an open dialogue. It's saying you must believe this or you're out of here.
1: Totally. In fact, I think that's what made me want to write this book. It was the internet. The internet is both. Saved me and condemned me. I think we can all say that, right? There is a certain level of it that has been so life transforming. We can't imagine life without it. And then there's a deadening side, a side that's been so painful. It's the source of some of our deepest trauma. What I would say to that is we're in a PTSD moment. It's only been 25, 30 years. And these things take time to correct. We have brought such a change into the way our interactions look and feel. Writing used to only be for school. Like when you were done with school, you didn't have to write. Now everyone is writing for an audience and they don't have the experience of how to nuance and approach their audience and engage them. They are used to like in-person conversation where, frankly, we hold back. We're not as cruel, we're not as direct, we're not as didactic in person. So online gave us like an opportunity to express ourselves. We're doing it poorly. We've been trained by school that there's one right answer. Everyone will agree if we just assert it. And we're learning that that's no longer good for us. Oh, and by the way, social media algorithms are designed to make it worse. So I'm hoping you know through a book like mine and books like Think Again by Adam Grant, that we're starting to actually recognize this moment, like, oh my gosh, we're in a soup that we don't wanna be in, let's (laughs) rethink. Let's start the journey out of this painful experience.
0: Having this conversation reminded me of a recent conversation that I had with a friend of mine. We do not see eye to eye on everything ideologically, and that's okay. We're still friends and we can still enjoy each other's company. But there was a conversation we had recently. Uh, It was based off of, uh, I think, the local state's attorney where we were decided they were not going to prosecute minor drug crimes. So people that were just caught carrying small amounts of marijuana or whatever, they were just going to find them and move on. Nope throw them in jail and create more problems. Anyway, he was very upset about this. He thought, you know, how can we let these criminals stay on the streets? But in the same conversation, he told me that he had started purchasing marijuana off somebody in his neighborhood who was growing it in his basement. And he described this person as a good family man who just, grew- and I said, I was like, you, you, do you see the problem with this argument you're making? Where you have a person who's literally growing the illegal drug in their house versus someone who just had a little bit in their pocket that forgot to take it out before they left that. You know, like, But you're saying one is so demonized and the other, well, he's yes. a good family man. He's fine. He's providing for his family.
1: That's right. Exactly. And I think so often that's because of our community identities and affinities and who we trust and who we don't trust, who we've been trained to see as deserving of our approval and who we've been trained to see as dangerous. I mean, the Rodney King trial, I was in California. I was a full grown adult when that was going on. It was just a classic conflict of two communities not able to see each other. And I think that so much of what we're trying to do today Uh, in the space that I'm in, in education reform, is to invite us to pause, to return to private thoughts, to time to process. You don't have to have an opinion about everything. In fact, you legitimately can't because you don't have the proper experience or education to do so. So can we sit with some ambiguity? Can we allow a journey I remember when I was first, um, I was aligned on one side of the abortion issue. Won't say which side I was on. And it was maligning the other side as evil and immoral. And then I was reading a blog article where the person said the side I was on was immoral. And I thought, oh, my gosh, both sides think the other side is immoral. How is that possible? So I started reading the other side from people who held that position, not my side's version of what the other side was. And I suddenly saw that we were talking about two completely different issues. I had no idea that one side was really focused on the baby and the other was really focused on the woman, literally talking past each other. And so here we are having these massive arguments about a social issue, and we haven't even agreed what the foundation is of the discussion. And here's where it led me at the time, and I was quite active in the position I had. I thought, we have to account for both of these ideas. We can't dismiss one and just assume we're going to convert the other. It won't work. And so in my view, critical thinking is the capacity to account for more, not to convert more, that would be the difference.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the the phrase that I wrote down here in my notes was, we want to generate insight more than we want to be right.
1: Yes, exactly. And insight generation takes gestation. It doesn't come immediately. You have to wallow in the complexity of the issue and let it percolate and interconnect with other things you've read and thought about before it will come. But when it comes, it's an "Aha moment. It's, oh. So that's how it really is for that other person. And you might be more compassionate or you might be more horrified. I mean, think about all the true crime podcasts women are addicted to. Do we do that to feel more compassionate? No, it's like deepening the horror, right? Being more fascinated with how this person's mind works. So I'm not arguing that this is a kumbaya methodology. What I'm saying is we need to account for things more deeply less surface, less vilification on the surface. Let us actually sink down, gather more data, allow time to go by and generate something new.
0: Uh, You mentioned education reform uh, a couple minutes ago. And one thing that made me think of is you talk about how multiple choice testing in schools has kind of ruined critical thinking as well because it's it's only given you definitive options. It's not giving you a chance to think about it. I would be curious to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, I'll give the example. Um, A friend of mine had a son who took a test, and the principal called her to ask him if he could explain his answer. So here was the test. There was a little illustration of a tree on the page, and the question was, what unit of measure would you use to measure this tree? And the options were A for feet, B for centimeters, C for quarts, and D for kilometers. And so this child picked centimeters. But the right answer was feet. The test was expecting the student to know that this illustration represented a tree that grew in the woods, a tall tree. So feet made more sense. But this student looked at the tree on the page, saw an illustration. It said this tree. And he said, well, to measure this drawing, we would use centimeters. And here's the crazy part. My friend and i were talking about it centimeters and feet are actually both right answers for either of them because they're both units of length so this test was asking the student to leap into the imagination of the test creator to pick the most stereotypical answer based on what that person had in mind that is not critical thinking that is trying to guess the authoritative answer Whereas the son had actually executed his own thinking and came up with a completely legitimate answer and yet was marked wrong for that question.
0: I was lucky enough to have some really good teachers, and I, I just want to share a personal story before I know we have to wrap things up. But um, one of my teachers, it was a American Studies class, uh, history class, and uh, the question was something about who is Stephen Brady, and I didn't, I, I couldn't think of who it was, but I, I wrote this long, drawn out essay about how Stephen Brady was the long lost Brady brother who didn't want to be on camera didn't want to be a part of the family and he lived in montana like this whole long and i ended up getting half credit for it even though i was completely wrong stephen brady was a civil war photographer actually which i will never forget now because yeah, of yeah you'll never
1: forget that right
0: but the teacher told me she was like you're wrong on so many levels like i can't even comprehend how you got to where you got she's like but the fact that you actually took the time to come up with an answer and to think about something she's like i, I just feel happy that you took that time and didn't just leave it blank so I got to have credit, <laughs> but I, but I mean, that, that's fostered, really powerful yeah, though, that your teacher saw you.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And also just the thought that your teachers saw you putting in the writing effort, there's so little appreciation for writing as effort. It's almost all focused on correct punctuation, accurate data, And very little for the effort it takes to think and express oneself. So I give your teacher great props for that. That's rare.
0: Well, if I ever see her again, I'll make sure I pass that on. But Julie Bugert, (laughs) uh, the book is called Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. Where can people go if they want to find out more about you or about the book?
1: Yeah, go to RaisingCriticalThinkers.com. You can purchase the book with any of the links. There's a free downloadable companion guide if you want to read this book in a book club. Uh, And then go to BraveWriter.com if you are looking for more information about how to raise kids who self-express in writing well, freely, and with good academic writing. Um, That's good for anyone, homeschoolers, non-homeschoolers, doesn't matter. So thanks for having me. This was so much fun, Jeff.
0: Thank you so much to Julie Bogart for her time. Always a pleasure to speak with her. I love the way her mind works. The book Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age is available wherever you get your books. And thank you to all of you for listening this week. If you have a second before you click over to another podcast, please give Adult Education a five-star rating. That really helps me and the show so much. I appreciate you. Until next time, be well.